Good evening, everyone. This is the penultimate moment. That means second to last. We're almost done with the whole Bible. That's really something. So if you guys will go to Revelation chapter 20, and if you will pray with me. Father, as we come toward the very end here of your story, I ask that you fill us with joyful expectation and that you would prepare us and make us ready to hear and receive the message that prepares the way of your coming, that with uprightness of heart and holy joy, we may eagerly await the kingdom of your Son, Jesus Christ, who reigns with you forever and ever. And we look forward to participating. Make us ready. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So Revelation chapter 20 generally circulates around conversations about the nature of the 1,000 years, often called in Christian talk and theological circles, the millennium. Because no one's really sure what precisely, at least unanimously no one's sure, what precisely the millennium is. Lots and lots of conversation, lots and lots of reading, lots and lots of thinking and study go into that to get that tonight. However, as I was reading about these thousand years for perhaps the thousandth time, no pun intended, (laughs) I was struck with the thought that this may not actually be the point of the passage We center so much of our attention and study to the millennium, the thousand years, that we often miss the prevalence of this chapter. And if you read it again, thinking what is the main point, you'll quickly notice that yes, the thousand years serve a huge role in this chapter, but no, they aren't the point. Taking center stage of this chapter is... The dragon. We see in chapter 19 that Jesus returns and he deals with the beast, the Antichrist, and the prophet, his little minion. And he throws them into the lake of fire. But the dragon, Satan, the devil, is not dealt with. And now he is. He's dealt with. The thousand years begin. Then he's released. You see how the devil here sandwiches the thousand years. The point of this chapter centers around something about the dragon. The dragon 
has been a horrible, brutal beast throughout the ages. Since Genesis 3, where he comes in as the ancient serpent and ruins everything, we see that the dragon is this accusing, berating, condemning, destroying, evil force against God throughout history. He is mad. He's a rage. He's a terror. And through his work, Edens become deserts. Blessings become cursings. Life becomes death. Light becomes darkness. Peace becomes war. Truth becomes deceit. Clarity becomes confusion. He is the great destroyer, the accusing, berating, condemning, destroying evil force against God. And in this chapter, we find out what happens to the dragon. If the gospel is the good news that Jesus is saving us, God is saving us through Jesus, then part of this good news is that the dragon who's always been at work, the beast behind the beast, the Antichrist, anti-God behind the Antichrist, that he will be dealt with and will last no more. And so in a sense, the thousand-year kingdom means absolutely nothing until the dragon is chained for a thousand years in the great abyss. That's the point of this chapter, is that the dragon and his way and his works and his destruction will be no more. And that in and of itself is good news to say amen to. Alright, you're with me. That's good. So, Revelation chapter 20 wants to remind us that a part of the gospel story is that Jesus is the dragon slayer. Jesus is the dragon slayer. And so here we get to see the fate of the dragon and the blessed result of his demise. So, now to the nitty gritty a thousand years. Let's read verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And we would love to see John tell us who those were. Just some vague pronoun. That's just confusing everything. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast, Antichrist, or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. You might remember that from chapter 13. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection, and blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests with God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So we've seen the binding of the devil, verses 1 through 3. We've seen the thousand years and who's reigning with Jesus, verses 4 through 6. Now section 3, verses 7 through 10, Satan's released. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. If you have no idea what that is, Ezekiel 38, Gog and Magog. To gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven 
and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown finally into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Section 4, verse 11, the judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done." So Hades is a place of the dead where ancients believed the dead went. So Hades is dumping out all the dead and they're being judged according to what's written in the books. And the sea, because the ancients said, uh, well, if you die in the sea, you can't go into Hades because Hades is in the earth. So the sea has to give up their dead too. Just different thinking. Uh, in, in other words, you know, just think for our common, <laughs> simplified brains, the dead are being called up to be judged. So you can ignore the technical language if it bothers you. But verse 14 Then death and Hades, after the judgment, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So chapter 20 is without a doubt, in my opinion, and I know many would share, the most difficult chapter in all of scripture. Now, I thought I had reached that chapter on multiple occasions through Revelation. But this is, hands down, the most difficult. And there are reasons for that opinion. First of all, (laughs) why is this chapter here? Really stop and think about it for a second. And this kind of, you start going, oh, what is going on? Chapter 19, Jesus returns. Chapter 21, the new heaven, new earth, the eternal estate, which we call heaven, is established. Now, it would make sense, wouldn't it? Jesus comes, immediately takes care of all the evil, and then sets up heaven. And we live happily ever after. But actually, that's not what we see. Tonight... We're in the middle of Jesus coming and setting up heaven. And there's this thousand year period in which Satan's given some sort of prison, some sort of liberty in between Jesus coming and heaven. It doesn't seem in our understanding to make sense. It seems like an interruption, an invasion, an intrusion. It's like the story was moving along nicely. And then all of a sudden, what? You're letting Satan loose? Didn't you learn anything yet? The dragon was behind all the misery. How do you not know that, Jesus? So in one hand, we read Revelation 20 and we say, what in the world is this chapter here for? Oh, to make it even more complicated, if you took Revelation 20 completely out, just erased it and made 21 the new chapter 20, the book of Revelation would not suffer one bit. Think about it. You could read straight through and skip over and not miss a beat, except for the dealing of the dragon. And the rest of scripture would not make a difference. See, Revelation 20 does not in any way 
solve anything. It's just there, and, and, and it seems like an interruption. Now, footnote, some of you would say, I have five arguments, 15 arguments why chapter 20 is necessary, but I need you to understand, you only have those arguments because you have a position on chapter 20. Without chapter 20, your arguments wouldn't be there, and you would never have known you need those arguments. Footnote closed. Because I know someone was going to say that later. All right. Uh, whoa. So, the question one is, why is this here? Question two, and this is really the biggest trouble, is when does this happen? And that's what we have to talk about for a little bit. Uh, when does this happen? So, what we've seen before is in Revelation, not everything is nice and neatly chronological. Sometimes things overlap. Sometimes the vision goes back and says, before this happened, this happened. And the question with chapter 20 is, is it doing that? Or is this right after the return of Jesus in chapter 19? So people bring up good points on either side of the argument, which makes it extremely interesting. One very interesting point is that the Battle of Armageddon mentioned in chapter 16, verse 14, in 19, verse uh, 19, and... Armageddon is mentioned there twice, is also mentioned here with the great battle of Gog and Magog. So some people say that's the same battle throughout. So what you actually see is chapter 20 is happening before the return of Jesus in chapter 19 and back over there at chapter 16. If you're getting lost, just come back now because I'm done. But that's one of the arguments of, oh, chapter 20 is not chronological. It actually happens before the return of Jesus. There are arguments against that too, which we will not believe. I will not make you guys' pot roast give you an excuse to fall asleep. So we'll just, we'll just go. Uh, so, okay, with that said, there are three major views historically that explain the millennial kingdom. And I want to tackle all three of them. Calvary Chapel, just to give you a, a tip right now, Calvary Chapel has always taught the first view. And most of you will see, I like that view. But I want to share the other two because I believe in the unity of Christendom and I want us to help I want to help you understand where other people come from. They're not unbiblical in their approach. They just see the Bible from a different mountaintop, if you will, uh, so that we can get along. This is not an essential doctrine. This isn't even heaven. This is something before heaven. So this is, this is honestly, this is nerdy, like theologians getting together and like, you guys talk about drama or who said what at work and theologians get together and say, we must solve the thousand year reign. So I want to address each of the three views according to the four sections. So all I'm going to do is basically make four comments about each. The four sections being the binding of Satan, the thousand year reign with Christ, who is doing that, uh, and uh, the release of Satan, and the judgment. So what do each of the views say about those four sections in our passage? And the, the three views are easily named. It's confusing until you hear it this way, so, so pay attention. You have the millennium, and then you have the return of Christ. Does Jesus return before or after this millennium? That's how the names are made. So the first view we'll look at is premillennialism. That means Jesus returns before the millennium. Pre returns premillennium. The second view is postmillennial. It means that Jesus returns after the millennium. His return is post-millennium. The third view is amillennialism. 
And amillennialism basically means, it's a horrible name for it, and most people that hold this view hate the name too, but it basically means no millennium. Now, they don't say, oh, yeah, well, it says it's here, but it doesn't happen. (laughs) We're just so much smarter than the Bible. That's not what they mean by their viewpoint. What they mean is that the millennium is not really needing to be talked about in relation to the coming of Jesus, because the millennium is right now. It started with the first coming of Jesus, and it ends with the second coming of Jesus. So now let's hash into each of these briefly, shall we? You guys with me so far? Three views. That's what I'm doing. Three views. Okay. Number one. Pre-millennialism. Jesus comes before this thousand year period. So the binding of Satan, therefore, that you read about in verses 1 through 3, is a future event. The binding of Satan has not happened yet. And most of us would say, duh. There is a lot of misery in the world. We know there's a devil. You don't need to prove it. And so there's a looking forward to Jesus will come back. And when he comes back, what he will do is he will deal with the devil and lock him up. And because of his return and locking up the devil, this thousand year reign will ensue. And the world will see. So now we're in the second section. What are the thousand years? The world will see an Edenic like earth where creation is cured. And you read about Isaiah, the lion and the lamb lying next to each other because creation is being cured and the curse that was inspired from the devil is gone because he's bound, he's done away with. Those that lie and murder and deceive each other won't be happening because the devil isn't working behind that. The way of the dragon is put behind the world now sees peace and prosperity and unity and love and harmony. You just throw out all the great happy words. (laughs) That's happening for exactly 1,000 years. We saw in verse 4 that there are thrones and people judging and they are coming to life and reigning with Jesus for a thousand years. Who are these that are reigning with Jesus? There's a lot of ideas, even in this view. But real quick, the best one is that it's saints. Old Testament, New Testament believers are resurrected at the return of Jesus. They're brought back to life in glorified bodies and with Jesus rule over the globe as we know it today. So that all nations and kingdoms and peoples come under the governance of Jesus and his government, us. Which puts big emphasis on how we live today, because that is really going to determine what you're worthy of for that reign with Jesus. Can Jesus trust you with his government? That's part of why we want to follow and obey his word today. Um, Now, what about the rest? Well, so Jesus comes back. When he comes back, there's going to be survivors on the earth. These people mere mortals who have not been resurrected, they're just still alive when he comes back, they're going to enter into this kingdom, and these are the people that the resurrected saints are ruling over, which is also a trip, is that these mere mortals, according to Isaiah 65 verse 20, they're going to be having babies, and these babies will be living at the youngest 100 years old. It says 100 years old is still called a baby. So these are mortals that have longer life expectancy because Satan's been locked away. And so the earth will be populated. There will be new people groups, new people being born, new things to discover. And we get to, with Jesus, govern this future Edenic utopia. 
third part, why is Satan released? He's released as the climax at the very end of exactly a thousand years to test these who are born in the millennium. They have not, not known any different. They were born under a Christ government. Of course, we serve the government. But now Satan's released. We're going to find out who still wants Jesus and who doesn't. Satan will be defeated. We'll find out who goes with him and who stays with Jesus. And then it's part four, the judgment. That's the second resurrection. You'll notice in verse six, it talked about the first resurrection. The second resurrection is bringing up the dead of the wicked. So all the wicked who died before this return of Jesus, they're brought up and they're judged according to their works. And then the final heaven will come into play in the next chapter. That's pre-millennialism. Jesus returns to establish the thousand-year kingdom. Second view, post-millennialism. Jesus comes after this thousand-year millennium. So obviously under this view, Jesus doesn't set the kingdom up. He comes as the climax to the kingdom, as the great finale. So what about the binding of Satan? This view says that Satan is bound and will be increasingly given a shorter leash as the gospel goes out into the world and wins more people. I need to say this. In pre, our first view pre-millennialism, it sees the world is getting worse and worse and worse till the Antichrist is ruling and then Jesus comes and intervenes to save the day. But in post-millennialism, it's the exact opposite. They see that the world's going to get better and better and better because the gospel's going to keep going and keep growing. And then Jesus will come as the greatest final exclamation point of a growing future. You see the very stark difference. Um, it might sound ridiculous to us because we've seen world wars and we see ISIS and we see all these things that make us fearful and we think the world's getting worse. But this view would say progress isn't always a straight line. It's two steps forward, one step back. Two steps forward, one step back. So sometimes you feel like you're not making progress, but in the long haul, you will see progress and the gospel will eventually convert everyone and then Satan will be totally and completely bound. So what are the thousand years? The thousand years then are the time from the resurrection of Jesus up to now and into the future. We are in the millennium because we're sending out the gospel, trying to bring people to Christ and trying to influence government with the gospel so that eventually the whole world will be at least, whether accepting or not, the whole world will be gospelized. And at some point through the church's efforts, the world will see unity and harmony and then Jesus will come back. So, the release of Satan is a final last-ditch effort by Satan to destroy the gospel. He loses. Jesus returns then, and then part four, the judgment. Jesus then resurrects everybody, saints and wicked. Everybody gets resurrected at once into their new bodies, and then the judgment is set forth, and the wicked are set aside, and the righteous go into heaven with Jesus. Are you still with me? I've tried super hard this week to make this simple and clear. (laughs) Okay, so first view, pre-millennialism. Jesus comes before the thousand years. Second view, post-millennialism. Jesus comes after the thousand years. It's basically an optimistic view of progress for the gospel. Third view, amillennialism. Now, before I continue, I want to say this. Pre, our first view, is one of the most popular views today. And has been throughout church history. Our second view, post, 
was only really popular during a certain section of history, during the Great Awakenings in America and the Great Missionary Movement, which spawned off of that and has continued to this day. That's all responsible. Charles Finney, Jonathan Edwards, the Great Awakenings. These believed in post-millennialism. And you can see, with their worldview, they were super inspired to go out and change the world. So whether that view sounds right or off to you, you have to admit that it put fire in the hearts of the believers. Now this third view, amillennialism, is just as prevalent as premillennialism. So pre and awe are basically the two competitors to this day. You may not be very familiar with it because if, if you kind of hang around Calvary circles, Calvary is very, oh no, not uh, millennialists. They deny the word of God. So <laughs> you're probably not familiar with this, but it is very popular. Just for an example, the Catholic Church generally teaches an amillennial uh, view. So right there, it's just like half of Christendom, right? So there you have it. Um, okay, so amillennialism. Uh, the kingdom is the space between... The first and second coming of Jesus. So we're in it. It's, lit- it's not a literal thousand years, because obviously we've been around for 2,000 years since the first coming of Jesus. So it's just a metaphor. It's, it, it really, if you think about John shooting from the hip, just saying a long time, especially in his age, when, you wouldn't, when he was saying Jesus is coming very soon, shooting from the hip and just giving a number, uh, a thousand, it's a big number. And that was his point. I don't know how long, it's just a big number. So they would say that it's not really meant to be taken literally. Well, what about the binding of Satan? Satan is bound. Right now. (laughs) You're like, what? You don't know my week. (laughs) Now, they would admit, and most premillennialists love to say this tongue-in-cheek, if he's bound, he has one long leash. <laughs> it's basically probation. Um, without a probation officer. <laughs> they, however, their reasoning is biblical. You may not agree with it, but they look at Mark 3.23, in which it might be 27, but it's Mark 3 where Jesus is confronting the Pharisees. And they say, you are casting out demons... Here we go. Devil's realm, right? You're casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, which was their favorite word for the devil. And she's like, that makes absolutely no sense. I am using Satan's power to kill Satan. Um, so I, if I am of Satan, why would I want to hurt Satan? That makes zero sense. And they're like, the, the, the. And then Jesus goes into a parable in which he says, if you want to plunder the strong man's house, you must first bind the strong man, then you can plunder his house. And so what Jesus is saying is, I have come, I have bound Satan, and I am now plundering his world. I am healing people, I'm doing miracles, I'm bringing the gospel of the good news. And empires, the Babylons, the Romes, the beasts, the Antichrist, they are all going to fall. So they look at Jesus saying that as corresponding to Satan is bound. Because if he, we might think it's a long leash, but before the coming of Jesus, it might have been worse. Um... So what about the thousand years? Again, it's the church age. So who's reigning, right? That's the question. Who's reigning with him? That would be the church, you and I. 
And when it says that they were brought to life, they came to life, that's just before verse 5, that's not a physical resurrection. That's the kind of resurrection Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2 when it says, uh, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, but God, who's rich in mercy, brought you to life. I think he, he actually says he raised you up with Christ. Now Paul was talking to believers like you and I in flesh and blood. And he was saying there, look, your spirit has been resurrected. And that's what it's talking about here is that there are people who are spiritually resurrected who are now reigning with Jesus in the present age. Now this is where you have to break into two groups. What does it mean reigning with Jesus? Group one, and sometimes they kind of play both. So group one, reigning with Jesus means reigning in this life right now. You can take out a few verses from Romans just to get the point. Uh, Romans 5, Paul says uh, that the righteousness of God is given to us so that we can reign in life with him. Romans 6, you're not under law but under grace so that sin cannot have dominion over you. And his implication is that your new life now has dominion over sin instead. In Romans chapter 8, he says that you are now more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. So that it's the present existence of the Christian in this world who is reigning over life with Christ. View number two is that the reign is actually when you die. So that you uh, are living now as a Christian, but when you die, what happens when you die? Well, you go to be with Christ. Like Paul said, I want to go. It'd be better for me to be with the Lord. And they would say his reasoning was because he then gets to enter into the reign of God over history with Jesus, who, by the way, the New Testament says is reigning with God at the right hand of God. So this is how they make sense of the idea that the New Testament says that Jesus is already reigning right now at the right hand of God. And then we die and join that reign with him until he comes back. That's all millennialism in a nutshell. Oh, I'm not done, right? Yeah, so the, re- the release of Satan. So Satan's released. What does that mean? Well, that's at the very end of time. There'll be a great persecution against the church led by the release of Satan. And then the fire that comes down from heaven to consume him in verse 9 is the second coming of Jesus. So I have to, that's what you have to see to understand all millennialism. We've been looking at the church age. Then Jesus comes to deal with Satan. And then he resurrects everyone and judges some to go to the lake of fire, some to go to the new heaven and new earth. That is on millennialism in a nutshell. Whew. Okay, if you tuned out, come back because we're done. If you don't get anything, this is what you need to get. At the end of the day, no matter what view you believe in about the millennium, and if you understand any of it or not, at the end of the day, it's summed up. Every view agrees. is summed up like this. The millennium is the removal of Satan by the reign of Christ. Every view would agree with that. The reign of Christ comes and removes the dragon. That is the thousand years in a nutshell. And I think we can all say amen to that gospel. So... The dragon, whom again I'm contending is the point of this chapter, the dragon must be slain. And even non religious people who don't associate with any kind of faith whatsoever understand this. They just don't call the dragon Satan, they'll call the dragon something like nuclear holocaust, racism. Uh, unemployment, illiteracy, um, disease. You go down the list of the negatives in the social realm, the secular realm, 
And they would say, these are things that are holding the world back. And they will target these. And so the secular realm will say, okay, the way we defeat their version of the dragon, and no doubt he's behind a lot of those things, the way we defeat the dragon is through moralism. We will simply teach people to be better people, and then we can overcome things like racism and war and holocaust and genocide. And if, if people who are hungry would get the kind of food they need and the kind of water they need, we meet the basic needs of human nature, then they will shape up and crime will come down and we'll see the world get along. And part of the problem with the world is that people don't understand, they're not educated, so we'll educate them. Now, these are not bad things. Don't joke like, oh, stupid people, they don't know how to defeat the dragon. Like these, We need these things in the world, but moralism cannot slay the dragon. <coughs> Another weapon that they use to slay the dragon would be technology. Through the advancement of science and medicine, the great doctors and scientists of the world were going to solve problems. And it, it's really kind of scary and kind of exciting all at once. You start to read some of the science things that are going on, and you're like, oh my gosh. They literally believe they can tackle death somewhere in the near future. They really believe this is not just sci-fi. This is like, we're finding out ways to like maintain the consciousness beyond the body. And you're like, okay, I don't even know what that means about my soul. That's crazy. And you're like, I don't even know if that's possible, but that's crazy. And so, but technology, the world looks at technology and says, this will advance the world. This is how we'll defeat the problems. Famine? Well, we've got... Um, thank you. I couldn't remember that. GMO to fix that. And this is like... We can, they can still way bust the door on GMOs. It's only a slightly open, and if people would give them permission, like, we could do anything with food, and we can literally create food in a lab. Hunger would be solved forever. Uh, this is just the view. Technology can slay the dragon. And yes, we need technology in places, because it will advance some problems, but technology by itself will never kill the dragon. And so the world's weapons of moralism and technology are not sufficient. What Revelation 20 shows to us is that Jesus is the dragon slayer. Only the rider on the white horse of chapter 20, only the lamb who wears the robe dipped in his own blood, only the Savior who rules the world by dying on a cross is capable of facing death and the dragon in the face and saying, do your worst because I've already died. You can't really, it's like not fair in a battle, right? <laughs> <laughs> Do your worst. My superpower is I don't die. So you go first. <laughs> that's, that's, what we're, that's what the dragon is up against. And that's why the world needs Jesus. And Revelation 20 again is saying, don't put your hope in politics. Don't put your hope in science or technology. Don't put your hope in moralism. Don't even put your hope in a certain religious institution. Put your hope in the returning and reigning Lamb of God who is slain for the sins of the whole world. Amen. The Lamb, Jesus, is the dragon slayer. And it is through his efforts that the devil is removed and he reigns. What I want to ask is in light of this, some of you are Bible study people, and you're like, ooh, I love the three views, like, give me more. I'll tell you how to get more later. Um, some of you are more like, man, I just had a hard week, just tell me how to follow Jesus. I was not really into that part, I like this part. <laughs> uh, so let's deal with both of those parts. 
for us today, regardless of whether the kingdom is like the literal future or some sort of a now, we do know that Jesus talked about the kingdom of God being at hand. And there is a real sense in which we do experience it even before it happens. Yet some of us are robbed of the opportunity because the devil has free rule. The dragon is breathing fire in every corner of your life. Gog and Magog are suffocating you as they come up to siege your tower. We slay the dragon by participating in the reign of Christ. We slay that dragon who's wreaking havoc by participating in the reign of Christ. Notice I say participating. I did not say submitting. I feel like most of what I've heard in my life was submit, submit, submit to the rules of God, moralism and all this stuff. And like, yeah, I know you're saved by grace and all, but you, you're not really a full Christian if you don't do these things. That's, that really speaks of dictatorship and tyranny. The church representing Jesus as this, well, I'm just a better version of that dictator you're thinking of. He never asked us to just submit because he wants us to be completely dependent upon him in a bad kind of way because Jesus is not power hungry. Instead, he's asked us to participate with him. And that's why he called 12 to follow him and gave them power over demons too. He wanted us to participate with him in the reign of God. Notice that it, I'm not just, oh, like it sounds good. I, it's right there. It says that they reigned with Christ. It's the end of verse 4. They came to life and reigned with Christ. Not sat around and let him do whatever he wanted and said, yes, sir, right away, sir, whatever you say, sir. They reigned with Christ. And you know what? I found out in my life sometimes that requires a dialogue with him. Sometimes I'm just not fit to say, I see everything you see clearly. All right, Jesus. Like sometimes like, are you sure? I don't know about that. You know what? I have a better way. And then he'll just like, kind of like, you know what, Brandon? Reign with me. I'll let you talk about it a little bit. And I might even let you take the first step and see that those coals are hot. That you should probably walk around instead. I'll let you do that. And that's how I learned to reign with him. And so that even the beauty of the gospel is that even our sins and our mistakes and our failures are not about condemning us and saying, well, you'll finally get it right one day. God's using all these things as we participate with them to say, now you know how not to reign, don't you? See, God doesn't throw anything out. He reuses and replenishes. He resurrects everything in our lives to make it useful and meaningful. We slay the dragon by participating in the reign of Christ. We do this with him. So in closing, I wanted to share four passages that I... This is very new for me, so I haven't even shared this with a lot of people. In fact, um, yeah, it's on trial, but I've really been enjoying this. I want to hold to this throughout the rest of the year. There are four passages I am choosing to read through each week, on top of what I usually read in Scripture. So since weekends are crazy when you have kids, and um, the weekday is five days, and usually one of those gets eaten up by, like, you snooze too long. So you typically have four golden days of, like, seeking Jesus in the morning. At least that's how I've noticed my life goes. Uh, So this is one passage for four of those weekdays. 
first one. In fact, I'm just going to read them as we close each one. So you might want to go to them with me. It's Matthew 5. Again, this is, these are passages that help me understand reigning with Christ. So Matthew 5, many have said that this is his kingdom laws, in a sense. Like his constitution. That's the word I was trying to spit out. It's his kingdom constitution. And it describes the Beatitudes, the way to be in the reign of Christ. Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Contrast that with the beast. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed, 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 nine times, because since the fall of humanity in Genesis 3, it's been cursed. But Jesus says, "Mm, follow my way and find blessing. And you'll notice every single one of these blessings is the complete opposite of what you see from the rulers of this age. Second one is 1 Corinthians 13. This is the love of the reign of God. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Of course, if you're into just doing the whole chapter, go for it. But I'm, I'm getting you right to the point tonight. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And what I love about the love of the reign of God is there's this assumption that those who follow Jesus know what love is. Notice that that the description there is mostly negative. This is what love is not. Essentially saying that if Christians could just clear out the clutter of what's choking them, they could actually love. We don't need to be told what love is. We just need to be told how to not let our love be choked. So therefore, get rid of these things. These are the ways of the beast and his kingdom Babylon. Follow instead the reign of Christ. The love of the reign of Christ. Number three, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. This is the fruit of Christ's reign. So we've seen the beatitudes of his reign, the love of his reign. Here's the fruit of his reign. Galatians 5 verse 22. But 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You can't legislate these things. These have to come from the inside out. And that's why it says the fruit, singular, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is all nine of them coming out of a person's life. That's the fruit. And again, I challenge you to see any of these applying to the beast. Or the dragon, for that matter. And then number four. The mind of the reign of Christ. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 verse 3. The mind of the reign of Christ. Philippians 2 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. But also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there we have Paul urging, this is the mind of Jesus, downward mobility. The beast, the dragon, upward mobility. My kingdom come. My will be done. Bring the people to me. Put my mark on your forehead. But Jesus is downward mobility. I will not consider God. The beast who thought God was something to be grasped at. I am God. I'm grasping for it. Jesus said, I don't have to grasp for anything. I and the Father are sufficient. And I will now give instead of grasp. So I will come in the form of a servant, even if that means dying for others. So different than the kingdoms of this world. And so there you have the four, the beatitudes of the reign of Christ, the, the love of the reign of Christ, the fruit of the reign of Christ, and the mind of the reign of Christ. And with these, perhaps we can, re- we can flip our backwards brains and say, this is what it looks like to reign with Jesus And this is how we slay the dragon in our families, our communities, and Lord willing, the world. The worship team is going to come up. We're going to take communion. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your table... This weekly reminder of what it looks like. What your law in the world looks like. You rule the world by giving yourself away. 
You rule the world by meeting the need of the least, the last, the lost. You rule the world with love. And not to a point, but even when it costs you everything. Lord, we want to participate in your reign until you come. So help us to learn to work with you. Change our minds and our hearts. And help us to always say, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth. So let's just let's pray the Our Father prayer before we take communion together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.